When I was trying to figure out what was wrong with my body, why I had memory loss and brain fog and signs of peripheral neuropathy, I picked up a book that was sitting on my nightstand collecting dust that I don't think I ever really wanted to read. And reading it opened a flood of energy and mental clarity, as if I had plugged in a set of Christmas tree lights. In today's episode of The Soul of Life, I interviewed Dr. Kurt Thompson, the author of a book called The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. If you've ever wrestled with misplaced shame, like believing the creator of the universe is personally upset by your sins and imperfections, hearing me trouble these waters with the love and respect I have for Kurt's faith may be interesting for you. But I have to tell you, I almost didn't want to share this episode with anyone. I recorded it in April and somehow it just didn't get around to crossing my mind to release it until now. I don't think that's a coincidence, given how adept our brain is at avoiding even hints of shame that we're confident are behind us. Shame, I think, is a neurophysiologic event, and one of its primary uh, results is that it separates functions of the mind from one another and it separates people from one another. And people in the helping profession seem to be particularly good at avoiding shame as if their role as helper absolves them from the junk everyone else has to carry, kind of similar to religious rituals. This can make us prone to burnout and depression. There is a disproportionately high number of psychotherapists who have an insecure avoidant attachment pattern, which means we're doing a lot of work already to not pay attention to affective states that are trying to get our attention. But we, through our attachment processes, have learned how to not pay attention to that part of our brain that's trying to speak to us. For me, one of the stories I believed about myself that took enormous effort for me to remember has to do with growing up as a boy who spoke every day to Jesus. That's where Kurt's book comes in. It's written for a Christian audience that, like I used to, believes to some degree that the Bible is a literal message from God. Now, I don't have a neat conclusion to this story, this chapter in my life, by the way. There's no glowing Thomas Kincaid portrait at the end here. No going back to the cross and surrendering my soul again after hearing Kurt's neurobiologically informed altar call. But I did need to surrender in other ways, to let go and believe in life and have faith in love. I've begun listening more to that little boy's faith in optimism and hope and letting him have a say in this adult world that can't neatly be condensed into a lifetime of theologies. The secret to dealing with shame effectively is knowing that shame is a biological process that belongs to you. But this is tricky. By definition, it's impossible to do it by yourself. We need to witness others like us in the shit with us. That's probably why I reached out to Kurt, because he's very open about that himself, his own awareness of shame and its influence in his story. Shame presents a conundrum to the human nervous system, which has two and only really two modes, arousal and relaxation, on or off. What does shame feel like in the body? Well, if you've ever heard of being drawn and quartered, it's torturous, like that. One side of you is pulling as hard as it can in one direction, off. It's the dorsal vagal response in your body, that sick feeling you have in your gut. 
that makes you just want to crawl under a rock. And then the other side of your body is pulling hard in the opposite direction. Get out of here. Fix this. Get back on your feet. On. Like that literally correlates with a part of my brain where the memory of that story is housed is cut off from my prefrontal cortex, the part of me that knows that I know that I know. This horrible, torturous state is what most people think of when they're forced to think about shame. And in fact, shame shatters the mind. And you'll hear Kurt and I talk about how this works. You have to understand that that's not a metaphor. Shame shatters the mind. When those parts of the brain, those parts of my mind, are disconnected from one another, I actually have to burn more energy mm. to manage that. According to a shame expert like Dr. Thompson, synapses in the brain literally don't connect and light up when shame is activated. They separate. I tell people it's kind of like if you have a beautiful vase sitting on a table and I were to say, could you please pick that vase up and bring that into the kitchen? One person could bring that vase up and just take it into the kitchen, no problem. But if the vase falls and shatters into a hundred pieces, I'd say, could you please bring that vase into the kitchen? Hmm. One person cannot do this very well. People can literally live their whole lives not realizing that this is going on, that shame has been like a brick placed on their head, keeping them quiet keeping them from wanting to offend others, to take up space, to feel like they deserve something, and kind of making you feel like you're sort of erased, wiped out or scattered all over the damn place. That takes energy to not pay attention to what your brain would normally want to be doing. It would want to right. tell you, you're hurt, you're angry, or this, you're that. Like, no, I can, I, no, I can just suck this up and keep going. Welcome to the soul of life. I'm Keith Miller. This is Lighting Up the Mind, Overcoming the Brain's Dimmer Switch. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. You're the author of The Anatomy of the Soul. That was your first book. And then more recently, The Soul of Shame. Um, and I, I shared with you, Kurt, you know, we've been friends for a long time. And I, when I reached out to you and I shared how your book, The Soul of Shame, you know, I had that on my bedstand. And I picked it up because bedstand. It's just it's sitting there. It's, it's just it's like a way to protect the bedstand from getting dusty underneath. I think that's why we have books, <laughs> books like yours. <laughs> exactly. So, books with the word shame in them, and and you know that's a whole other topic, you know. But but you had the courage to put the word shame in your book title, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. And then and then so I picked it up. And I know you, and so, and I know, I know who you are. And I, I knew what I was picking up when I, when I read your book, uh, when I started reading it. And I also knew where I was, which was, in a certain way, I'll use the word lost. Mm. And I don't use that word lightly. I, I'm, a, I'm a driven person. I know w which direction I want to go. Uh, I don't appear lost to anyone. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was feeling in my, what I, I would say in my soul was a sense of disconnection. And I use the word disassociation. I think clinicians will understand what that means. And we usually use that word to talk about trauma and psychological trauma and how the mind fragments and disassociates. But I was, so I was, I was becoming more aware as I struggled with these neurology issues, phantom neurology issues, brain, uh, memory loss, brain fog. Um, and most, you know, most scary was the peripheral neuropathy, you know, you know, neurologists used, you said tuning fork, you know, so he took a tuning fork and this was, this was the, this was when, you know, the lights got dim for me in, in my narrative of the, of what I was going through. Like he took the tuning fork and he said, I'm going to put this on your foot. And he had his thumb there so he could feel the vibration. He said, tell me when the vibration stops. And after about five seconds, I said, it's gone. And he said, okay, fair enough. I'm going to do the other foot. Did that. He said, I'm going to just do this one more time. Just tell me when the vibration stops. About the same thing. Six seconds, maybe I tell him, okay, it's gone. He says, I'm going to tell you now when it stops. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and we, our eyes met and there was a, we didn't say anything, but I, at that moment I knew what he was, what he meant. And he said and about 20 seconds later, Kurt, he said, it's, it's stopped. Mm-hmm. And there was just silence in the room for a moment. And he, he's, you know, I just, you know, I had this feeling like something's really wrong. He said, you're not, you don't have sensation in your feet. And we did the same thing in my hands, not, not in my fingertips. And he, he dragged a, <laughs> you probably know what this test is, but he dragged a needle, a pin, you know, up. And he said, tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell me when you start to feel the needle. And it was somewhere up my calf is when I felt it very lightly. Right. So, so I picked up your book sometime around that, that time. And I've, I've been a psychotherapist for almost 20 years now. I've been doing my own therapy off and on deep dive stuff um, that I've worked on about myself. And, and I was trying to Rubik's cube this, this thing. Could it be, could it be something psychologically what's happening? How am I feeling? None of this fit. I couldn't come up with anything. I was blank. I mean, literally, that was what was happening. I was blank. I was empty. I was feeling foggy. So I pick up your book and you talk about you talk about shame, but you talk about so there was something that spoke to me about your book in a way that was um, that no one else could have done because of your Christian background and my Christian background. And you spoke about um, and, and I don't I, I can't even tell you what you said. <laughs> But it was it was something about knowing you and knowing this this was okay and what if I could put my finger on it, Kurt, it was the sense that um, it was okay for me to open up the chapter chapters in my life during which I deeply knew that I belonged to God. Mm-hmm. And there's a long story about my relationship with with religion in which I don't really want to participate re- with religion and and. And so for, for me, that was scary, but you made it your words and you, your presence and your writing mm. in the soul of shame made it okay for me, made it safe for me to open up that story and say, it's okay to belong mm. to mm. God. Mm. And I don't really use the word God a lot, Kurt. I don't know if you know that about me, but I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> and I'm curious about how, how people are responding to your, to your to your book and and i mean i don't know 
Well, can I, the, the first thing I want to say to you, my friend, uh, I want to say to you, my friend, um, that anything I would write would be meaningful to you. Yeah. That is a big deal mm. to me. Mm. So um, I'm, uh, I'm really touched and uh, humbled and uh, just really um, uh, jo joyful mm. that uh, you um, had that experience. Mm. Um, that notion, I, I, I love what you just said, this, this notion that, you know, we can, um, that we can have the courage to open up chapters, you know, that we, it's, it's okay to, uh, it's okay to walk into certain rooms in our house that frankly, Keith, even with great psychotherapy, there are just lots of rooms that people don't know that they don't know about. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's not like, yep, I, I know about those three rooms and I'm just not going in them. I mean, a lot of times, like, I, like those rooms, I, I've, been, I've been so disconnected from those rooms for so long, I, I don't even have any idea that they're there. They literally stop being mapped in our mind, I think. Right. 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 They're, they're just like, well, we're going we're gonna to not know these things. And I, I'm, I'm really persuaded that this is what shame does. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the neurobiology of shame. I think mm -hmm. really, I, I'm persuaded that, the, the, and one of the most, uh, I mean, there, there are a number of different, I, I talk about this in the book, you know, there are these different features of it, come, even from, a, from an interpersonal neurobiological perspective. But the whole notion of isolation, um, being cut off from mm -hmm. ourselves, so parts of me cut off from other parts of me. Right. And to the degree that that is the case, of course, that means that those parts are equally cut off from you. Like I, there's, there's, mm -hmm. I'm cut off from you. I'm cut off from within me yeah. from you. And, you know, I think I, um, you know, for, for your, you know, for, for what it's worth for your listeners. Um, uh, I think that there is a lot of wisdom uh, anthropologically to be found in, you know, the first 10, 11 chapters of Genesis. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot to be, uh, to be found there. And this whole notion of God's statement that it's not good for man to be alone is not just a throwaway comment, right? It is a, mm -hmm. it's an anthropological like statement. It's, it's like, it's like gravity, mm -hmm. right? Like you can do with you, you know, you can build airplanes and you can build skyscrapers and so forth, but you never do so like apart from gravity is the law. Like, that. like, yeah. Yeah. Like the writer of Genesis was saying, this is a fundamental truth about our existence. Right. It's not good. Like you can't be, you won't be okay if you're alone. And I, and to the degree that I am alone within myself is a measurement of the degree to which I'm alone and cut off from you. Right. And that's, that's interpersonal neurobiology. I, right. Yeah. Can, is, that, that's the thing that you, I mean, that's, a, that's been a big part of your life. Interpersonal neurobiology that really was a, it's, it's a, it's a phrase that was developed by Dan Siegel, friend and colleague uh, back now over 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago. And the whole notion is that um, there are lots of different uh, scientific disciplines that have an interest to have a stake in what the mind is. But many of those disciplines, you know, they're kind of in their own silos and they're doing their own discipline work. They don't talk to one another. 
And Dan's hope was to ask the question, what are the things that all of these different streams that are in their silos, what are the things that they have in common? And working over a long enough period of time um, brought him to a place where he could say that the mind, looking at all these 40 different disciplines or so, the mind is this embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. And that's how we define the mind. But the, 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 the two links there are, is, is that we're really talking that the mind is both embodied, right? So it's neurobiological. It has to do with my neurons. And my neurons are not just in my brain, right? They're throughout it's, my body. because my the whole body. body. Right. It's my entire body is part of my mind. But it's not just my embodied self. It's also my relational self. This notion that newborn comes into the world, about 20 to 30% of his or her neurons are firing in a way that they need to at that time. Everything else requires the interaction with another human being in order for those neurons to come together and fire. As right. They so, so literally yeah. our, our, our life and our, our immune system and our uh, everything turns on because of the interaction. Right. Yeah. So when we are disconnected from ourselves, so it's this sense that I'm disconnected, not just in the abstract, like I don't know about this part of my story, but like that literally correlates with a part of my brain where the memory of that story is housed, mm-hmm. is cut off from my prefrontal cortex, the part of me that knows that I know that I know. Right. And when those parts of the brain, those parts of my mind, are disconnected from one another, I actually have to burn more energy mm. to manage that. I tell people it's kind of like if you have a beautiful vase sitting on a table, and I were to say, could you please pick that vase up and bring that into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. One person could bring that vase up and just take it into the kitchen, no problem. But if the vase falls and shatters into a hundred pieces, and I'd say, could you please bring that vase into the kitchen? Mm. One person cannot do this very well. It's going to take a lot of trips. It's going it's to be inefficient. And it, you might say, gosh, I could use some help. I'd like to have three or four other people come and help me pick up this space and take it in. And in the process of doing that, we're going to put these things, you know, we're going to work to put it back together. And shame, I think is a neurophysiologic event before it is something that I, it's not an abstraction. It is a, an embodied event. Uh, and one of its primary uh, results is that it separates functions of the mind from one another and it separates people from one another countermanding this whole notion. It's not good to be alone. Right. And shame does everything to create greater states of isolation. Right. The brain is a, an extraordinarily highly trustworthy organ. Now when people are depressed, they're like, what the heck? Like it's not trustworthy at all, Mm -hmm. which I want to say, Oh no, it actually is. Because what it's doing, mm-hmm. it's letting you know that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's telling you that there's a problem. And if I'm having, if, if I'm depressed, and if my depression is showing up in the panoply of ways that it can show up, everything, all those different symptoms, yep. those symptoms are trying to let me know that I'm actually, I, I have actually been asking my brain to work in ways it was not designed to work. Right, right. 
So I say it's kind of like if you're out for a long run and halfway through your seven mile run, uh, you like twist your ankle really badly. You still got to like, you got three miles to get home. So now you're limping home and you're going to get home because you got to get home. But in order for you to get home, you're going to have to create a gate cadence Mm -hmm. that is not going to be the way you would normally walk. But it's going to be the way you're going to walk to get home because you got a sprained ankle. But then you wonder, adaptation. Yeah, and then you wonder the next morning, like, why is my offside hip so sore this morning? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't right. hurt my hip. Right. But you've been asking your hip to do things that it was not intended to do. Right. So there's the burnout piece, right? Right. And so I would say that you know when we when we get burned out, a burnout in many respects is you know I, I think it's interesting right that there is you you you're probably well aware that there is a disproportionately high number of psychotherapists who have an insecure avoidant attachment pattern. Mm-hmm. Say more. Which says something about the degree to which we do or don't pay attention to affect to emotion. Mm-hmm. Which means we're doing a lot of work already to not pay attention to affective states that are trying to get our attention. But we, through our attachment processes, have learned how to not pay attention to that part of our brain that's trying to speak to us. Wow. That takes energy to not pay attention to what your brain would normally want to be doing. It would want to right. tell you, you're hurt, you're angry, you're this, you're that. Like, no, I can, I, no, I can just suck this up and keep going. Right. I don't even know that I'm doing that. You don't even know that you're doing it. I think that's that's the pernicious part of this. Right. Um, in, in that we then come up with other labels and categories to describe ourselves, I think, um, to avoid the label of saying burned out. Um, you're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. You know, for for years, for for me, it was how can I, uh, being an entrepreneur, Right. I'm, I'm moving on to bigger things. I'm, I'm doing more. And so that was uh, when I when I would feel the burnout, when I would feel the, the symptom of uh, no energy, kind of a disconnect with my work, it would be, well, I'm going to I'm going to there's a way I can go around this. And even especially today, when we're talking a lot of the conversations in this in this um, um, the events recently, the disruptive events around privilege. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, so my privilege was allowing, I, I had the privilege to be able to work around the things I wanted to avoid and didn't realize that at a certain point, what that was, do is, was doing is borrowing, like putting on credit energy that I didn't have. Right. right. And then eventually my body started saying, no, right. Uh, no, right. I'm at, you're actually not going to remember that those are green peppers when you're trying to order at Subway. You can't actually find the word green peppers. Mm-hmm. And it got scary for me. Yeah. Um, so biblical narrative. You use the word. So as a Christian, you you are a a psychiatrist, medical doctor, and your your writing is clear that you write about psychiatry. You also write about the Christian faith. A lot of my listeners may not be Christians, mm-hmm. and when they hear somebody talk about the you know in this conversation we're having about mental health or um, 
neurobiology, when they hear the word biblical narrative, um, you know, their ears might perk up a little bit. What's what's the reaction of colleagues been? Because you this is not new to you. You've you've been um, in this field for a long time. And your friend Daniel Siegel does, you know, for example, teaches this from a completely secular view. Yeah. Well, so he would say. Okay. Okay. That's a whole other conversation. Well, I also understand. I'm gonna I'm gonna name something about that. Um, so what has inspired me about Dr. Siegel, and I hope to possibly have him uh, in conversations like this as well to talk about how a spiritual phenomenon occurs when you have a Newtonian body that is so complex that it creates quantum effects. Now, I think there's lots of ways we can talk about this, but I'm just wondering, yeah, say more about, about the, this intersection between someone who says, I have a, a spirituality that is composed specifically enough to say God or Jesus or Bible. So it's narrow in that sense. Yeah. But also you're somebody who deeply knows the, 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 the burdens of narrowing, as we just talked about, of, of restricting movement. Right. So does that make sense? Oh yeah. yeah very clear. Let me, let me just say this, uh, Keith, I, um, uh, I am, I, 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 you know, if you're looking for a guy who has it figured out, like I'm not your man. Like, I, I, <laughs> no, sorry. I just, I, you know, because like I just had a conversation with my wife this morning and she confirmed that I am not the guy who has it figured out. Man, this call is over. <laughs> okay. And um, I love that woman. Um, and uh, our, our spouses have a, have a good ability to, to kind of tell us that we don't have all it all figured out and our kids. You have no idea. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> when I get invited to come places to speak where the large portion of the audience are not people of faith. Right. One of the first things that I say to them is that like, here's who you get. You get a guy who believes in the biblical narrative. What does that mean? Well, we, you know, it's, it's a, it's a 30 second, you know, crash course on Jesus and story and so forth and so on. But I said like, here's the thing. If it were somebody else up here speaking, mm. what they're probably not going to do is to tell you, this very same thing. They're probably not going to tell you what the narrative is out of which they are coming to you from, that they choose to believe to be the case. And here's the thing. Everybody believes that there is a big picture story about the world. Right. But right. most of us don't go out of our way to say, as it turns out, I think that like the world as we see it is all that there is. And at the end of the day, it's just going to be like the, you know, the, the big crash is, you know, the cosmologists are going to tell us like, it's all going to go dark. And nothing's going to remain. And if you start your conversation like that, it's tough to be hopeful following that. It's, it's like it's tough a little, to me. <laughs> well, it's tough. I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to frame what you just said. It's tough to be hopeful. It's tough to 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 trust uncertainty, right? It's like when you use the word faith. I I what 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 comes up for me is uncertainty. I, I you know so many times with my clients we're talking about, and they're not not they're not people of faith, and and I, I'm really not there to talk about their faith they're not asking me to talk about that but what i'm what neurobiologically what i know is when we have a safe relationship with uncertainty well our learning skills unfold our attachment skills unfold and so 
you know, when you're, when you're describing scientists as, you know, having this rigidity, I think maybe potentially and, and not naming, you know, the uncertain aspects of their disciplines. Um, that's what inspires me so much about, uh, the conversations when I, when I hear people like Dr. Siegel talking about quantum physics and talking to the people who are on the edges of their discipline, who, who actually know what you just described. They're, they're, they know what they don't know. Right. As much as quantum mechanics tells us that there's so much uncertainty, um, you wouldn't guess that that's what we believe from how we act. Right. Which is why, which is why the COVID situation has made us so anxious because as I, or as I wrote in one of the essays I wrote, right, it, it doesn't just create anxiety, it reveals Mm-hmm. But the moment that I start to name these things, as it sounds like from from the story that you gave to me that I read, yeah, um, it sounds like you began to name things, right, to tell the truth and to and to give form to yeah. right, and to name things not just by yourself, but to name things in the presence of, uh, of somebody else who's who can hear that and say, "Gosh, that makes a lot of sense." Yeah, psychopharmacology. What, what was unlocked for me was the sense of trust. He was saying to me, we, I've got a tool for you. This is, this is going to work. If it doesn't work, we're going to find something that does. But we know enough about this. Here's all you have to do is trust me and follow my instructions and, and take Zoloft every day. I hadn't, at that point, I had no trouble with that. Now, I, I, as you probably do, I talk to a lot of people that have a lot of trouble with that. And, I was one of those people. Well, as I tell patients, I, I think that, you know, in many respects, psychopharmacology is a, is a way, you know, there, there, are, there are lots of things that we do to enable the brain to function in an integrated way. Um, part of how we do that is by the conversations that we have with ourselves and with each other that enable us to tell our story more truly. Which right. we access all those things that we sense, image, feel, think, and do so in the context of a community. Uh, I think that pharmacology is not unlike what we do in any number of different medical settings in which we are providing some kind of technology that enables us to function more effectively. Right. And, um, you know, psychotherapy is a technology. Psychopharmacology is a technology. It is a way in which we are uh, in, in different ways, creating space for the brain to become more whole, uh, more integrated. And so I, I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm just really, I'm really thrilled that uh, your journey has found its way to where it is. Um, Thanks, man. No, I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's like I told people, it's, you know, that, the, the lights were on before and they were pretty good lights. You know, I, you know, I was, fu- I'm a high functioning person when I was depressed. Yeah. Super high functioning. Like it's like the Christmas tree you bring out every year if you celebrate Christmas and, and you, you know, you know, you, you know, it's good enough. It lights the tree. And then what I realized as I began to open myself up to health and help and more faith <laughs> in others and more faith in myself and more faith in something in things that I don't know and understand is that that act itself of letting go of what we know turns on lights. It turns on lights. And it's like I had now, now it's like, Oh, there's lights. Oh, there's supposed to be lights there. Oh, there's supposed to be lights there on this tree. Oh my gosh. 
Right. It's right. like, you know, so I just want to offer that to people who are listening that there's so many possibilities that, that uh, we are meant to have access to. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that for various reasons, our lives and, and the choices we've made or choices other people have made have constrained us. And so thank you for, uh, for spending this time with us to talk about possibilities, right? And, and opening up ourselves to, to what's really out there. Right on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.